Hello and welcome to episode 37 of the Figure Podcast. Each week we figure out people, numbers and images of the past, present and future. And this week we are talking about some incredibly current issues and topics that are happening right now, um, including the recent terror attacks in Sri Lanka and the Notre Dame Cathedral in Paris. Um, but before we get on to that, I wanted to just mention how lovely the weather has been over the Easter bank holiday. I think that everyone in the UK probably feels a little bit more rejuvenated. Um, I, for one, was absolutely bouncing out of the house uh, when the weather was warm because it just feels like a different city. What about you? I think I say this every spring, but I forget mm. how much long winters are. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, sunshine so just works wonders on mm. everything and being in scotland in the spring at this time of year is so beautiful there's daffodils everywhere we didn't have a single cloud in the sky and yeah i just felt so lucky to be here and i've had lots of long walks and easter egg hunts with lots of chocolate fantastic um i have been in berlin this week um and i always forget what a joy it is to sort of discover a new city um there's something really powerful about just walking around and just feeling the sort of energy that's there and 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 discovering new places and um we went on some fantastic tours and you also really feel like the history of the wall and the divided country and you know soviet occupied you know the iron curtain and that part of europe is so recent um so recent and so interesting i didn't learn about that in school at all and so i only no i only learned Mm. about that when i actually went to berlin itself which in some ways Mm. is nicer because it's so much more real and you're there and you're living and breathing it i know what were what were the most surprising things that you learned about while you were there um i think the most surprising thing was well we on we had this incredible tour guide we had a, a, a tour that lasts about four hours and, and we went all over the city and um she explained to us that the holocaust memorial um which is is there to uh remember the seven million jews who were murdered in europe um some say that it actually is higher number than that um and it's about 250 meters from the Brandenburg Gate, which is probably the most famous site in Berlin. And they put it there very deliberately so that when you go to visit the Brandenburg Gate, uh, you automatically sort of find yourself stumbling upon this uh, memorial, which is very powerful. Um, and that's exactly what happened to us on our first night. And we went into the museum downstairs. And I think it was good that we hadn't planned it because we found it so overwhelming and so moving because what they did very well was express how individual each you know you hear seven million people and you just can't really comprehend that number it just it's just kind of another number in my mind and they actually break it down and they say this family mr and mrs so-and-so they had four sons they were in this trade uh, they were taken to Auschwitz in 1941 and these members were killed immediately. These were sent to work. Then they died. Did such a, you know, And they do that for so many families that you end up just really connecting to 
just how many individuals this affected. I just, I, yeah, I just, I can't believe it's not taught like that because I feel like at school, it's still just taught sort of as another number or statistic. And actually it was one of the worst genocides that has ever happened in our lifetime. And the 9-11 memorial does that same <clears throat> thing of highlighting mm. the individuals really yeah. in such a moving way. And yeah. especially with the uh, the sites that are there and there are now fountains and all the names that go around and it. The water. I mean, yeah. I just everyone's in floods of tears. It's so overwhelming Absolutely. to see those, but also Absolutely. so important to remember what has happened and to keep those mm. stories alive. Yeah, absolutely. And I think one of the most interesting things is that um, we found out on the tour that actually Hitler's bunker, which was built uh, for him and he lived in for four months uh, at the end of his life, is actually underneath that memorial. Mm. Um, and it goes from underneath that memorial and it stretches several hundred metres down the road to this sort of very nondescript car park. Um, and so you have this site that's, you know, pay, paying homage to all of these victims and this atrocity, and it's 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 I think a very clever way of of making sure that people come there to pay their respects for that and and to not highlight him in any way. I didn't realize that. Know. That's so interesting. Mm. What a clever use of architecture. Mm. You know what else was really clever as well is that one of the only remaining. Nazi buildings in Berlin, um, which was, I think, the headquarters of the SS or Gestapo, so where all the decisions were made uh, for the, the mass extermination of so many Jews, um, wasn't actually bombed in the war. And they think the theory behind that is that they needed it as a landmark, because when you see a city from the air and you've bombed everything, it's very difficult to know where the buildings are. Interesting. So they thought so they thought it was either that or they thought that once they occupied Berlin, the Americans and the English, that that would be their headquarters because it's a very efficiently built building with like 150 offices in it. Um and that could be a very, you know, an effective place to to sort of uh base themselves. But what they've actually turned it into now is the Ministry of Finance, which is totally dull. No one cares about numbers or banking. Um and therefore, it's become a very uninteresting place to visit. And people don't really care if they see the last remaining Nazi building. They just walk past the Ministry of Finance and are just like, ugh, money is boring. And I thought it was so funny that they did that and so clever. Yeah. But that was a very conscious attempt by the, the German government to... Uh, very interesting use of mm, like the utilities yeah. of those buildings and actually being Absolutely. really thought through. The other things I wanted to highlight just before we move on um, were, so on the 22nd of April, we had two, I guess, Remembrance Days. Um, one of them was for Stephen Lawrence, who was the teenager who was killed in 1993 um, as a result of an unprovoked racist attack. And I didn't really know very much about this until I started to look into this day, which has been the first of its kind and will continue to recognise his legacy um, and kind of what his young life has meant to so many people. He he was wanting to be an architect and 
His family have since gone on to help 126 young people get into architecture. Um, So that's one of the incredible things that's come out of such a tragedy. Um, But it was talked about in why I'm no longer talking to white people about race by René Edo Lodge, because this whole trial of his murder wasn't actually described as a murder for so long, and they ended up doing an investigation into it in 1998, and it wasn't until 2012 that two people were convicted of murder. For That's crazy. It just, it absolutely blows my mind. I also don't understand how I didn't know that this was going on, which, again kind of reinforces this idea of institutionalised racism, which this has become Mm. symbolic of, that as a white, privileged girl, why did I not know Mm. about this? Mm. Very important to remember. And the other thing was Earth Day, uh, which was set up almost 50 years ago and has become a kind of day of in some ways celebration, in other ways kind of recognition of everything that the human race is doing wrong <laughs> to our planet. Absolutely. Um, have you been following Extension, Extinction Rebellion? I have not. Tell me about that. Yeah, because it's fantastic. There are thousands and thousands of protesters that are um, lining the streets of London. They are, you know, blocking certain transport routes. They are blocking certain roads. Um uh, so many of them have been arrested that they've run out of prison cells in London, so they're having to send them outside of London, and people are just replacing them as soon as people are arrested. Um, and they're going to be doing this for a month um, to try and get the government to create legislation, essentially, that will uh, impact uh, climate change, because the rate that we're going, we are destroying the planet. Wow. And I think they're even... Pla- essentially, they're planning to just keep going until someone listens to them. Um, and it's quite controversial because a lot of people have views of, but they're obstructing people on the on transport. This is going to affect innocent people trying to get to hospitals and trying to get to places. And I completely understand that. But actually, how else are we going to get attention? That is so How else are we going to raise this this topic? Wow. Um, and you know, just today we had Greta Thunberg. Uh, meet with Jeremy Corbyn and the British Parliament. Uh, And she is this absolutely phenomenal uh, Swedish 16-year-old who has called for all young students to really challenge their members of government to to listen um, and to make legislation that's going to impact the climate positively. Um, So we're really seeing sort of waves of change when it comes to climate change. And apparently the three things that you can do that best sort of impacts the planet is to... Uh, be vegan, uh, fly less, um, and to use less zero waste plastic. Mm. Um, and they're in terms of as they are as a protest group, they're very much like keep the focus. This focus is completely on climate change. It's not about cannabis legalization. It's not about animal rights necessarily. It's not about such and such. They've got these. You know, it's all peaceful. Um, no one is being violent in any way and it's just one focus which is climate change and I think it's absolutely profound to see yeah wow that's really interesting that's absolutely brilliant the other thing I wanted to mention just quickly um, is an article that I read from the New York Times by Ferris Jaber and it's about the Gaia hypothesis 
which was set out by James Lovelock, I mean, years and years ago. And it's the idea that the earth is a kind of living thing and it can consume and store and transform energy and that everything on the earth is obviously part of that. And it's sort of, I guess it's quite uh, a spiritual way of seeing the earth in some ways, but scientists have very much dismissed this and they're now beginning to not do so so much which is a huge shift in mentality and just seeing how the earth itself can adapt and the way that seaweed, coral, shellfish can balance the carbon and the way that elephants like reconstruct the surface of the earth and the role of the Amazon rainforest in this breathing of the world in some ways, but also how humans are disrupting that natural balance and order of life so much but also that we have the agency to stop it and try and make amends for all the damage that we've done absolutely and and, and individuals aren't gonna like not enough individuals are going to do it um, of their free will so it needs to come from the top down yeah exactly as we discussed in the previous episode yeah The first figure that we're going to be looking at this week is Mary, Queen of Scots, who was born on the 8th of December 1542 to King James V of Scotland and was actually six days old when she acceded to the throne. She was born just before her father died. In researching this, you, you almost couldn't make up uh, the story of Mary, Queen of Scots scots and what she went through um and i feel like it's very unfairly taught to students at school you, you're sort of taught about mary queen of scots slightly crazy odd character who ended up being beheaded by elizabeth the first it's very much elizabeth the first is dominant and in charge and we don't really know much about mary queen of scots other than that she had three husbands that all died in her lifetime that was literally the only thing that i really learned about her that's really interesting that you say that because i think that says a lot about the difference in the curriculum between england and scotland because well, yeah of course i mean we 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 hate france and scotland <laughs> <laughs> um we i still remember so clearly being taught all about mary queen of scots when i was in year four interesting. and no, I so i would have been seven or eight And I remember, I mean, we had the most brilliant teacher. The friend that I had staying with over the weekend was also in year four with me. She was called Mrs. Gifford. And Mm. we went to all sorts of places in Scotland that had been associated with Mary Queen of Scots' life, one of which included uh, the library of our school where she had actually stayed. And her the bed that she slept in, you can still go and visit it, which was very mm. cool. There was a lot of stuff in Leaven and Fife that yes. is like to, to so, do with her. So I thought that you would have come across her. Yeah, actually. she was imprisoned at Loch Leven, um, and I believe yeah. that's where she had her miscarriage from her third marriage twins. to Earl of Bothwell. Mm-hmm. Yes, to twins. Yeah. Um, she was actually imprisoned for eighteen years. Nineteen in total. Nineteen. Was it nineteen? Yeah, in England, um, and didn't see her son again after she abdicated um so her son from her second marriage uh was later to be james the sixth of scotland uh, and james the first of england uh and actually his claim to the throne is an incredibly strong one because mary queen of scots is the granddaughter of henry the seventh 
Um, also, Henry And she Tudor. was a legitimate child, unlike yeah. Queen Elizabeth. Uh, Lord Darnley, uh, who was her second husband, uh, was also the grandchild of Henry VII. So they were first cousins, um, and they both had claims to the Scottish and English thrones. So actually, their marriage made a lot of sense. Um, and therefore, James I and James, or James VI it, it was quite rightly um, the heir to, to the throne in England after Elizabeth didn't have any, any children of her own. Um, but interestingly, mm. Mary Queen of Scots was originally destined to marry Henry VIII's youngest child, uh, who would go on to be Edward VI. Um, and they made this sort of early sort of agreement to to marry uh, to marry them, which again would have made sense given that Mary would have had a strong claim to the English throne. Obviously, Edward was going to inherit the throne from his father, um, and then the Scots decided to revoke that deal and go and ally themselves with the French, which had traditionally been what they had always done. Um, and this happened and Henry VIII got very angry and stormed Scotland and burnt down various castles and, uh, and, and churches. Um, but how interesting is that? I mean, that could have changed the course of history um, if, if, if they had married. So yeah. that, was, that was interesting. Yeah, really interesting. Well, she's such a pivotal character and she's, her story, as you said, is so compelling. And she's been played by some amazing actresses over the years, including Vanessa Redgrave and Catherine Hepburn and lately Saoirse Ronan in the latest um, film with Margot Robbie, who plays Queen Elizabeth. What were your thoughts on the film? I enjoyed the film a lot. I thought it was, it was really interesting to sort of look at the story of Mary, Queen of Scots, uh, properly and I didn't realise because obviously I've been maybe because it's because I've raised in the English system I just didn't really have much nuance to her story all I knew is that she just had three husbands who died and gave birth to the to James the first the film actually fo- focuses on quite a narrow sliver of her life as well I know you don't even see the third marriage do you you do very briefly because he rapes her and that's included she, there's two rape scenes, I think. Oh, God, yeah. Um, but the... I think I blocked that out. Well, no, there's the first scene, she's like, it, it implies that she hates him, but she wants to get pregnant, so she, like, sleeps with him anyway. There are, there are so many parts of that film which really are not easy to watch. Um, but I think what's interesting and was explored in this really good interview um, with Sersha. Uh, was that this film began about six years ago and she was so excited to have been asked to play the role of Mary Queen of Scots because as an actress she started acting when she was only eight years old and then she went in on to do things like The Lovely Bones, to do Atonement, the Grand Budapest Hotel, but she talked about how quite often her roles, and she could see this happening as she got older, were becoming the sister, the girlfriend, the neighbour, much more sideline roles. So for her to be offered to be playing a queen was huge. And there was a lot of build-up in her career to this role. The most interesting thing that was included in this article was that the scene when Queen Elizabeth and... Mary Queen of Scots meet, which supposedly never happened. That's definitely... No, it doesn't happen. No. 
Um, yeah. But then when they film this scene, which is actually an incredible scene and can kind of be taken as almost like an imagina- imaginative scene on both of their parts, um, that was Saoirse's first day of filming and Margot Robbie's last day of filming. And they neither one of them had seen each other and what they were going to look like or their costumes. And so those that scene with the muslin coming in between them there was so much tension in that scene. I can't I can't quite believe that they managed to play that with that kind of crossover. But I really like hearing how things were filmed and the, the setup of it. I think that's why everyone loves to, to sort of speak about back behind the scenes and they love to hear sort of the real kind of story as to how things were filmed because it doesn't necessarily... You don't realise the impact of that as you're going along. Also, the film is very much like the story is told interchange like the interchange between the two stories throughout the whole film so so the film was based on the biography written by John Guy and I just wanted to read out a quote from this because I think that this is what they highlight in the film between these two very powerful women on the throne in England and Scotland at the same time so he writes the real reason became apparent from Elizabeth's many lame excuses she feared that the younger possibly more beautiful uh, queen of Scots was so magnetic, so brilliant in conversation that she overshadows or surpassed her. And I think the film really played out that anxiety of a younger woman that you haven't met, that you've only heard rumours of, and all of that power play in a similar way that The Favourite actually explored. Totally. Of course. And also, and also, these were two women, so the film really highlight how these two women were played off of each other by men and by nobles that were around them. Actually, neither one of them wanted harm to the other one. And that's that's actually very well documented um, historically, is that both women saw each other as sort of cousins, as, as, as fellow queens, and that actually we should probably support one another. That's why... Mary Queen of Scots made Elizabeth I her son's godmother was to to show this um and actually you know I guess women have have sort of been pawns like that for a, a long time um having a queen of Scotland and a queen of England I mean I'm sure there are most of the nobility were not very happy about that um I actually also really liked in the film how they portrayed the relationship between her and Lord Darnley, who was her second husband, um, her first being the King of France or the Dauphin of France, um, because the beginning part of their relationship, I don't know about you, was actually very romantic and idyllic. And this, this, the shots of them horse riding um, in sort of the Scottish mountains were so romantic. I just thought, gosh, that would be, you know, my ideal uh, you know, some sort of handsome man on a horse in the mountains is is, is literally my uh, idea of an idyllic uh, sort of courtship slash proposal. Um, so, and then it it turns sour so quickly, yeah, um, and became very violent. Um, and they actually, when they got married, the idea was that they were both going to be king and queen on equal grounds because they both had the same claim to the throne. But after they got married, uh, she refused. Uh, it's called crown matrimonial. So she refused that. And within about apparently seven or eight weeks, um, his popularity decreased uh, significantly and she got pregnant very quickly. So there are, you know, and so maybe the scene in the film 
is a theory as to what happened there in order for her to get pregnant so quickly um and again something else that's awful in the film is one of her closest confidants and one of her most trusted friends uh, a man called david rizzio was actually stabbed 56 times in front of her when she was six months pregnant and and they were even rumors that he was the actual father of the baby um in the film they very much portray him as someone who is homosexual but they also very much portray him as a um I didn't really get the sense so much that he and Mary were having an affair. I very much got the feeling that his homosexuality meant that he had been, he'd lain with um, Lord Darnley, which is implied by... I love how um, old-fashioned I know. <laughs> no, yes. no, because I'm quoting... Lain with. Lain with. Lied with. <laughs> had sex with. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yes, there's that, there's that implication. That's true. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, the source actually quoted that so that's where Mm. it comes from but it's only one source so who knows whether that was true or not also very likely there's no way homosexuality would at all be accepted or especially if you were married to a queen you know maybe he did murder him so that no one would find out or to quash that rumor but then what's remarkable is that he was then um murdered himself Mm. this is lord darnley Mary's second husband. He was murdered himself a few weeks later, and the prime suspect of that murder was actually Mary's third husband. And this was the final kind of blow for her popularity that she ended up marrying the uh, gentleman who was accused was of, the Earl of her second husband's murder. Yeah. Mm. And again, I don't know, it just feels like as a, a lot of the things that made her unpopular were but to do with her being a woman and know? being a catholic i don't think a king yeah i don't think a king would be accused you know they wouldn't think i mean gosh henry the eighth had six wives mm. and you know well, she was popularity she was very much characterized as a whore and an adulterer yeah. and the the multiple husband thing became a thing when she hadn't had any overlap and she'd been essentially forced to marry because she had to have a husband And Mm -hmm. that was used to her demise by the Protestants who hated the fact that they had a Catholic queen on the throne. And that was very much led by uh, John Knox, who I learnt about a lot in year four. Mm -hmm. Um, And he wrote a book called The First Blast of the Trumpet Against the Monstrous Regiment of Women. What a title. (laughs) Gosh. Yeah. But the other things that we learned about, just from a kind of Scotland perspective, were so there's this is highlighted in a um, there's a trail of Mary Queen of Scots, so you can go to different places that were significant in her life. One of which being the uh, Falkirk Palace, which is really beautiful. It's actually it's partly ruined now due to a fire, but she used to play tennis there. So it's got, got one of the world's oldest tennis courts and she would dress up in men's clothing to play tennis, which was scandalous. And apparently she would also walk the streets of Edinburgh dressed as a man and people wouldn't necessarily have known because she was so tall. Apparently she was six feet tall. Wow. Yeah. So she wanted to see what everyday life in Edinburgh would be like. Um, and the other things that I, As a man. yeah, exactly. Um, the other things that I learned about her was that she used to wash her face in white wine, a 
apparently. Ooh. And that she had okay. uh, 22 lap dogs when she was living in France. And her Sky Terrier, I do remember learning this, her Sky Terrier was in her dress when she was beheaded. And so he kept by her side right towards the end of her life. And then the dog passed away a few days after she had been beheaded. And Mm, the final thing was that she was married in Notre Dame Cathedral in France. And she wore white, which in France is the colour of mourning. And so this was also a scandal. Isn't that interesting? Really? Yeah. Gosh. Gosh, what wasn't a scandal? The second figure that we're going to talk about today is that 321 people have been killed since the terrorist attacks that took place on Easter Sunday in Sri Lanka, and a further 500 estimated have been injured. It is so sickening even to just read those numbers and as you were saying in the introduction for the holocaust memorial i think when you start to look at any individual stories the whole thing becomes so overwhelming because you start to think that that's individual stories times more than 300 plus all the people who've been injured some of whom will maybe never recover to the same Degree. I mean, everyone's lives have been transformed deliberately by terrorists. I felt like this was really close to home uh, for a few reasons. Um, uh, one of the victims was a student at Godolphin and Latimer School, uh, which is where I have girls who are uh, close to me or part of my family who attend. Um, there were some victims who... The man who owns ASOS... Uh, he lost three out of four of his children. My boss got engaged at the hotel, one of the hotels. Um, and I just I just thought, wow. Ironically, uh, thinking about New Zealand and Sri Lanka, the two countries that have been in the news recently due to the terror attacks, are two countries that I would think of in my mind as being some of the safest to go on holiday. And actually, just before these attacks happened, I remember thinking to myself, uh, because I was talking with with, um, one of the girlfriends I was with in Berlin, what's on your sort of top three countries you want to go? And and, and Sri Lanka is one of them. Um, And I sort of thought about in the very, you know, going very soon. So it was just completely baffling. I just felt, wow, wow, I can't believe this is still happening. Mm. Both of those attacks have been such a shock for me, especially considering that exactly a year ago I was in both of those countries and had partly chosen them because I thought Mm -hmm. I'm travelling on my own as Mm -hmm. a young woman and they are safe places to go, quote unquote. And it just makes me think, is anywhere safe? And and just because I travelled and spent so much time in both of those places, it feels so raw for me and Mm. I just can't ever imagine how it feels for anyone who's closer yeah and you know I live in central London and and I take the tube every morning and sometimes if I let my mind wander to a dark place I just think gosh this is such a obvious and easy target and are we going to have more attacks like this Sri Lanka has a president and a prime minister and there have been quite a few tensions between them 
and there have been rumours that are unconfirmed that the authorities were actually warned of an imminent attack um, from the NTJ, but obviously hadn't put in precautions in order to prevent this. I know, but they but did they know where it was going to happen or like? I mean, I don't know. But I guess we we're not going to know, are we? They're not going to release that to the press. But I I heard that it was sort of the Indian uh, intelligence authorities had known for a while that there was some kind of attack that could have happened. Um, it makes me wonder as well what kinds of things that do our governments know uh, that are going on at all times. Um, it's, it's hard to hard to think about. Um, I thought it was odd, not odd, but like interesting theory floating around is that the Islamic State has taken responsibility for this attack. The American intelligence services think that it was a local terror, a terrorist group that actually, I guess, operated the attack. But actually, they had a lot of help, external help. Yeah, and and mm. and I think as well the rhetoric going around that oh we've the Islamic State no longer exists. We've we've you know, it's not there anymore. We've, you know, we've exterminated everyone. Everyone's fleeing. You know, we had the Shamima Begum case that really highlighted that. And everyone was saying, you know, Islamic State isn't there. This is very much them saying, yes, we are. We're still here. And also a theory going around is that it was a retaliation for the Muslims that were murdered in the New Zealand attack. And then they targeted Christians because it was the most important day of the Christian calendar. Yeah. Well, it was the of the sites, so there were six, there were eight blasts and there were six sites and they were all successful. So it was three Easter services and three hotels. And the targeting in any case is so, it's just, it's horrific. I, I It's so hard for, to talk about, but I know what's really odd in the context of Sri Lanka's history, that they had a civil war that lasted for more than 30 years and thousands and thousands of people were killed but of all of the different religious groups in Sri Lanka the Christians are quite unique in that they haven't initiated very much if any violence in history of Sri Lanka so why are they being targeted it's and also the the other anomaly is that foreigners were very often spared during the, the civil war and this was a very targeted Christian Personally. locations and tourist Tourists. locations. Yeah. Um, yeah. Although 80% of the people who were killed were Sri Lankan. God. And the most upsetting article that I've read on this was on the Times, and it was talking about how people were gathered outside the hospital in Colombo and they were identifying the victims. And so images of the faces of the people who had been killed or were injured were flashing up on the screen. And the reporter was saying how you would just hear shrieks of anguish mm. from different mm. parts of the crowd as people started to recognise those faces on the screen. God. Going back to the, the context of Sri Lanka again with the civil war, which was fought between the Tamil tigers and then the Sinhalese Buddhist community. Having been there, I spent three weeks there and I learned quite a lot about it because I always try and take an interest in the history of the country that I'm traveling in. And I read a really good book called um, The Island of a Thousand Mirrors. And it was a novel and it explored a kind of relationship between a Sinhalese and a Tamil. 
and how that played out. And then the sister of the main character was a suicide bomber or was in, I can't actually quite remember, but was involved in a suicide bombing attack. And I think what I find so upsetting about this is that when I went there, this whole country felt like it was really beginning to heal, not only from the civil war, but from the tsunami, which also completely ripped the country apart. And yeah, I f- absolutely. And I feel like the this attack has just gone to those scars and has just clawed them open again with more suicide bombing going on and that being how they were delivered. And it's just it's so unbelievably sad that we still yeah. have a world that keeps on having so much violence and destruction. Do you feel like you would go back to Sri Lanka? Yes, I would. Yeah, I would. I don't do you think... think you'd go back to most places that have had terror attacks. Yeah, I do because I think that weirdly, sometimes when an attack like this has happened, it actually makes somewhere safer because people are on higher alert. I mm. think it just makes me think that can you go anywhere and I know and not and you don't want that mentality and and can and can anyone live their life not appreciating what they have and mm. seeing their family and and then trying to show compassion to everyone around them. And I was listening to an interview actually yesterday with Natasha Kaplinsky, who is a very famous BBC and, and then Channel 5 reporter. And she had this awful boat accident last year where this, the boat that she was staying on with her family exploded. And she was really badly burnt. Her daughter was really badly burnt and her father were really badly burnt. And she just said that it, you know, it changes your perspective on life because all of a sudden you realize that we could just go at any time. And actually we need to be really grateful for what we have and, 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 and if we still have our loved ones, ones near us. And I remember thinking, gosh, that's so true. And especially when you hear about these families that, you know, the ones that from, like round the corner from here and that suddenly they're they're both their kids have passed away and this attack is just absolutely mind-blowing um and that we're so lucky to have our life and our health the third figure that we're going to talk about today is notre dame and the before and after shots of the fire that took place and has damaged a huge amount of the cathedral and the insides of this church. But I feel has been given disproportionate media attention in comparison to the Sri Lanka attacks. What do you think? Yeah, I completely agree. Um, we've, I feel like with Notre Dame, it was, it, we heard for days and days on end about the cathedral and what had happened and about the fire and it was huge and it was all over social media. And I feel like with Sri Lanka, it's just sort of like briefly been mentioned and Game of Thrones had way more traction online than the Sri Lankan bombings. Um, Mm. I think that maybe partly what it is, is when something like those Sri Lanka attacks happened, it's so incomprehensible mm. that and difficult to talk about and think about that it's much easier to focus on another emergency that is of a completely different nature or something which is escapist like game of thrones i think it says a lot about human nature 
Totally. Well, do you think that's why there was so much money raised? Yeah, so the, the money that's been raised, it was 1 billion euros in just a matter of days after the fire. And I think that God. it has highlighted for a lot of people how much wealth there is there from the super rich that they can give away. And lots of questions over, well, what about the people who are refugees in France or who are living in poverty or not just in France, you know, in the rest of the world? What about the poor people who've lost so much in Sri Lanka? Why can there be so much money raised so quickly for something like Notre Dame when it can't be raised with so much ease and speed for something else? Do you think it's because with Notre Dame, once they fix it, that's something that's like permanently fixed and is going to be admired and revered, hopefully for the yes, rest of time, do. for a long time. Whereas helping individuals is more just like, well, that money will just disappear. Yes. Because you can't really have an everlasting memory of, of what your money's been spent on. It's it's more just like you can yes. see it. Um, which is kind of crazy. I think it's... <laughs> I don't think it's ever an either-or situation, though. I think that it's very complicated and people will donate to things for different reasons. But I do think that with something like Notre Dame, which is such an icon and such a pillar of Mm. the history of art and the history of France, it is something that people can put their name to. And it's kind of... um, You know, you always have this to a certain extent when big families donate to art exhibitions or galleries where they get their their wing yeah, in their name it's mm. it's philanthropy but it's also very much showing off how much wealth they have in many cases yeah totally and then totally. i think that things like um the sackler wing in the royal academy being a good example the sackler family have been linked to the pain killer oxycontin which is has been compared mm. to heroin and is kind of part of the mm. whole opioid crisis and yet they have their names in spotlight in so many kind of historical institutions and the source of that money in many ways isn't questioned definitely i mean the blavatnik uh wing or gallery in the vna that's where the dior exhibition is at the moment i mean len blavatnik was uh, a trump donor um um, and has ties to Putin mm. and Trump. So, uh, yeah, and he's he's also, fun fact, same year as my mother at uh, business school. Oh, really? Uh, but, <laughs> yeah. Um, but, again, that's a permanent yeah. gallery that will always be there. So, yeah, um, I think it is the permanence of art, but it's also the, the fame of it and the glamour of it that it's... For sure. And Notre Dame is the perfect opportunity to have the glamour and the fame associated with yes it is with money it that you is donate. and i'm not sure how much it's actually going to cost to restore but uh macron has said that it will take five years and they want to make it more beautiful than before and the i listened wow. to a podcast um with a it was really good it was by history extra um with a historian called emma wells and she was talking about the kind of different options that may happen or may not in that they might end up doing a glass cathedral so that you can see the damage and it becomes a kind of embedded part of its history um which is an interesting Mm. idea but i think i'm probably quite traditionalist in the way that i would like things to be restored that i think 
this you should mm. definitely acknowledge the fire and it becomes part of its story but I don't think that going modern on it is a good idea <laughs> I don't trust architects to make it quote unquote more beautiful <sighs> have you visited Notre Dame yes I have it's absolutely beautiful and how can you remember um, how you feel felt when you went inside breath is breathtaking um it's it's one of those sort of places in the world where you just feel very lucky that you're able to see yourself and with your own eyes um I think cathedrals are kind of incredible for that I think Notre Dame uh Basilica of oh no was it Church of the Saviour of Spilt Blood in St Petersburg and Sagrada Familia probably three of the most beautiful buildings I've ever seen in my life mm and they're very spiritual spaces and I think that what's interesting about Notre Dame is that it was very much kept in that way I was reading an article which was comparing it to St Patrick's in Dublin which he felt had been quite commercialized and it had its gift shop and everyone's taking photographs whereas Notre Dame still has the services and people are encouraged to um you know think about their lives or say a prayer and and I think that's also why this monument has really touched so many people and why so many people are talking about how sad it is that this has happened. Um, but then again, though I read another thing from um, someone who is a Christian and he says that he sees his faith as something which is about building the living stones, not the physical stones, and that we should be focusing on the people in need rather than a building in need but realistically you can't just let it sit there and get worse and worse because it's now going to be very much exposed to the elements as well so they've got to do some quick restoration work they've got to take down all the existing scaffolding that was there which is going to be very intricate to do do we know what started the fire I don't think so, but I think it was in the process of being uh, restored. Yeah, it was, because it, it's not very fireproof, was... I believe. No, exactly, exactly. So there's there's a risk when you restore anything that... Um, I think the risk of in fire is increased, but oh, equally, okay. if you don't restore it, then yeah. you've also got a huge yeah. risk. And the the cathedral itself, which is now completely destroyed, that was has been described as a sort of forest, and it had incredibly long... Um, pieces of timber that made it up and they are questioning whether they'll actually be able to find a forest that is tall enough that they can recreate it because these are from what I understand the pillars were actually made from entire kind of tree trunks that were all shaped into a certain way um which is really remarkable considering how old this building is as well it's just it's such an extraordinary example of gothic architecture and I've really enjoyed reading the ups and downs of its history. It's not like destruction is anything new for this amazing building. Um, not to this extent, but we've had... So the revolution, it was um, seen as very a sort of symbol of the church and the monarchy and was um, sort of damaged in, by that. It had two dozen shells um hit it or and around it in the first world war um and 
Then in the Second World War, the Rose Window survived. They weren't sure whether that was going to be the case. There's also been ups and downs in taste and trends. So, for example, Louis XIV, he removed the stained glass windows and replaced them because they weren't fashionable at that time. And then kind of questions of idolatry have meant that lots of sculptures have been pulled down over the years. And then, um, really interestingly, Victor Hugo's book, The Hunchback of Notre Dame, brought a huge new appreciation for the Gothic and that led to lots more restoration within the church. Um, which I just thought the the relationship between a book and then what that can do to a building was fascinating. Um, and it reminded me also, and wanted to link to this quote by Victor Hugo, which said, what makes night within us may leave stars. And I think that can be a way of seeing this fire that from, you know, the ashes, things rise out of it. And yes, we've got all these questions over whether it's right to spend this money or not, but it's sort of starting conversations. It's raising history of this building where Mary Queen of Scots was married, where James the fifth of scotland was married um napoleon and josephine were crowned there it's it's this sort of meeting point and melting point of so much art taste and and history Mm. um that i think that we have to preserve and remember but how we do that is what's now being come into question definitely and i think just more and more today with the sort of rise of AI technology all the sort of very modern architecture I think human beings do strive to preserve what is beautiful and what is from the past and what reminds us of our history not everyone has that view but I think a lot of people do and they're very keen to preserve Mm. it um, because they Mm. want everyone else to have that feeling that that they experience yeah exactly and actually this is a place that has is going to outlive all of us Mm -hmm. and has seen so many generations of people and I think that's part of what is is so moving about historical places that you can stand in a place where so many other people have stood mm-hmm. before you and it makes you feel so connected to a wider humanity and and how much beauty humans can create as well as damage and absolutely humans are are capable of extraordinary things um and you just have to look at the world around us to to remember that and also remember that we are stewards of the earth we don't own the earth thank you so much for listening to this week's episode of the figure podcast you can find us as always on instagram at figure podcast and on twitter at figure podcast we love to hear from you and we love to hear your suggestions for other figures so please keep in touch um and let us know what you think about the topics that we spoke about today um it's always interesting to hear everyone's opinions. Also, very exciting news. We have been nominated by the British Podcast Awards for the listener's choice. So if you like listening to us each week, please vote for us at the British Podcast website. You just type in the figure and scroll down and you'll be able to find us. We'd also love it if you could leave a review on iTunes. It helps other people find the podcast. And we really love hearing your feedback. Um, We are also going to be taking a break for a few weeks so that we can reconvene and re-energise and then we will be back in June with 
many more figures to come. Until next time. Bye-bye.